little bit. Welcome to the show, you squirrely bitches. Guess what? It is breakfast with Kyle time. Well, actually, wait, what was... I don't think that was the name of the segment that we came up with. Maybe it was. No, I really don't remember. Breakfast with Kyle, eating with Kyle, I don't know, something along those lines. It's for all those shows where I didn't have time to eat beforehand, so I'm literally eating as the intro music is playing and as we're uh, coming on air here. Today I have my, uh, my absolute classic, which is a bagel with strawberry cream cheese. Incredibly underrated. In fact, it's not even rated because I'm not sure there's even like a dozen other people on the planet that have this. This is a very unique order. Um, but God damn it, it is tasty. And I'm very happy that I have this for breakfast. And the good news for all you is I only have two bites left, bitch. And then we have a very substance-packed show today. Um, MSNBC is going after Bernie, and they're not even trying anymore in terms of making sense. Wait until you hear the totally vapid shots that they take at him. It really is stunning. Anybody who's not already in their bubble is going to look at them like, wow, you guys are pieces of shit. So I'm going to lead with that story. Then we have Jon Stewart decimating Rand Paul and Rand Paul's weak sauce response. This, of course, is about the 9-11 Victims Healthcare Fund. You can imagine how pissed off Jon Stewart is, and you can imagine how much Rand Paul is trying to obfuscate. Then we have uh, Rush Limbaugh weighing in on uh, the send-her-back chants at Donald Trump's rally, and send-her-back, of course, was directed at Ilhan Omar. And his take is uh, pretty standard Rush Limbaugh, but that also means it's incredibly noxious and bigoted. So we'll talk about that as well. And um, later on today, you're not going to want to miss this segment. This is like, this had me floored. My jaw was on the ground. But Fareed Zakaria actually did the best segment I've ever seen on CNN, and it wasn't even close. Like, it it is by far and away the best segment, so I suspect he will be fired relatively soon. (laughs) Wait until you hear what he, what he, who he went after, or what he went after. You're not going to believe it. I, I really couldn't believe it. Mm. And the last bite is down the hatch. Okay. Got some big sales to do, bitch. This is um, this is one of those purchases where I was like, ah, fuck, because everybody knows I'm a fan of the original seltzer. Because to me, seltzer is a replacement for water, so I don't want, you know, I don't want like flavored shit. But this is all they had at the store, so I got lemon flavored seltzer, and it's just too lemony, man. I just want some regular bubbly water, you know. Mm. Team Original Seltzer. That's me. Okay, so, without further ado, let's get started. 
<clears throat> I got this video queued up for you. Prepare to get angry. So MSNBC is so used to preaching to the choir that it appears like they gave up trying to bring in new viewers. And um, that's very evident in this clip that you're about to see. This is like peak, substanceless criticism of Bernie, and also peak, vicious criticism against Bernie. So let's take a look, and then we'll discuss. Andrews and Elizabeth Warren next to each other will really highlight, because for me, as, you know, again, I'm not the political analyst here, but just as a woman, probably considered a somewhat moderate Democrat, I, Bernie Sanders makes my skin crawl, and I can't even identify for you what exactly it is, but I, I see him as sort of a, a not pro-woman candidate. And so having the two of them there, like, I don't understand young women who support him, and I'm hoping that having him next to her will help highlight that, because those are the people that I, if I were her, I would want to say, well, why are you supporting him and not me if you're going to choose between the two of us? We'll leave Sarah come back just so we might not yeah, great job from the host there, pressing back on that insane claim. So um, she says Bernie Sanders makes her skin crawl, and then she says, I don't know why. And she also says um, he's an anti-woman candidate, and he doesn't understand why other women, young women, would support him. Well, I don't know, maybe you can ask them and then digest their answer and then try to understand or you could just viciously lash out and attack somebody in the most vapid way imaginable and, and in an obvious smear attempt. So when you say, well, he's anti-woman, and you say, I don't, I don't even know why, but I think he's anti-woman, what other word is for that but smear? Because when you look at his record, it is arguably the most pro-woman in terms of policy of anybody in Washington, D.C., so when you say that he's anti-woman, it makes absolutely no sense. It is factually wrong. And if you're going to say, I don't like him, and I don't know why, I just don't like him. He makes my skin crawl. Okay. Well, since we're playing this game of identity politics, and you said he's anti-woman, and you base it on absolutely nothing, you can play that game. Maybe the reason you don't like Bernie and the reason he makes your skin crawl and you don't know why is because you're an anti-Semite. Why are you so viciously attacking the person who would be the first... Jewish president in the United States of America. Not only are you attacking him, you're dog whistling by saying, I don't even have a reason. I just don't like him. I just don't get good vibes from him. I don't know why. He makes my skin crawl. Why does he make your skin crawl? Is it because you hate Jews? Why do you hate Jews? See, now, if she hears me say this, she would call me like a vicious Bernie bro, and how dare you, and why would you say such a thing? But I'm just doing exactly what she just did. Now, by the way, I'm actually, um, you know, intelligent enough and objective enough to say, I don't really think you're an anti-Semite, or I don't know. I have no idea who you are. But I wouldn't have said that if you didn't come out there and say he's anti-woman and have nothing to base it on. And MSNBC, the host is like, okay, we'll be right back. Wonderful. Awesome. And Zerlina Maxwell sitting next to um, this woman, who, by the way, her name is... Mimi Roca, and Zerlina Maxwell is not. Yes, yes. So is that how it works now on MSNBC? You can literally have no argument, literally, 
and no reason for stating something, but you could just state it, and as long as you're playing for the proper team, everybody nods and agrees, yeah, it's very serious, very serious and objective analysis. Absolutely. When you say that Bernie Sanders is anti-woman and you make your skin crawl, yes, very serious and adult conversation that we're having here. Now, furthermore, they act like, well, I mean, Elizabeth Warren has the same record as Bernie, so... Why would you support Bernie over Elizabeth Warren? Sexist. That's what you all are. You're sexist. That's what the implication is. If not, that's what they're outright saying. And the reality is, of course, you know this because you're very educated on the political issues, the overwhelming majority of my audience is. That's not true at all. So Elizabeth Warren has famously waffled on Medicare for All. Now, since she felt the fierce backlash of that, she has since tried to course correct and act like, nah, totally, I'm on the side of Medicare for All. But it's clear what she believes. I mean, she used to say all the time, well, the core of what, of what the Democrats are fighting for is all the same. Whether you're fighting for, you know, uh, Medicare for America or Medicare for all extra or the public option or just expanding Obamacare, whatever you're trying to do, we're all trying to get to that same core of universal coverage. So that's what you're saying, you know, whatever, false equivalents across the board, all the health care plans are the same because we're all trying to get to universal coverage, but only one bill actually gets us to universal coverage. And that one bill is the one policy, actually two policies, that she had at her rallies all these placards made where they had, like, all her policies laid out. Wealth tax was one which is wonderful among many others. You know what was missing? Medicare for all. So um, there's one main reason why people would support Bernie Sanders above Elizabeth Warren is Medicare for all. Also, the way in which they would get stuff done, Bernie has said repeatedly, hey, listen, in order to get the proper policies implemented, I'm going to harness the will of the people. I'm going to go, if Joe Manchin is blocking a Medicare for all bill, I will go to West Virginia. I will rally his own state against him. And I will make sure we apply maximum political pressure to get our goals accomplished. That is fundamentally not what Elizabeth Warren believes in. She does not believe in potentially throwing colleagues who are blocking necessary change under the bus. And that's where they belong. They belong under the bus. Furthermore, you want to talk about a blind spot, Elizabeth Warren on foreign policy is a total and complete blind spot. I mean, she's taken donations and helped out defense contractors in Massachusetts because there are many defense contractors in Massachusetts. She has voted for different iterations of the extremely bloated military budget, which gave Trump more than what he asked for. To say that there's no difference, well, I would just want one, maybe you're just sexist. You're being dense on purpose. You just don't like Bernie. Now, here's, here's the real reason. David Sirota uh, tweeted this after this clip came out. Counterpoint, maybe the thing that should actually make your skin crawl is the fact that Mimi Roca, that's the one who said this stuff there, Mimi Roca's SDNY, Southern District of New York, did not prosecute any major bank executives who were involved in the financial crisis that destroyed millions of lives. See, this is, it's, it's stunning, it's amazing, because this is what it always comes down to. The people who are critical of Bernie Sanders, the people who are vicious to Bernie Sanders, they all, at some point or another, are directed right back to corporatism and corruption. That's what it is. It's not just an ideological disagreement. There are plenty of people who just flat out have an ideological disagreement with Bernie, and they go, hey, man, I'm more centrist. You're to the left of me. I'm not for you. Hey, that's fair enough, and we can have those honest conversations. What we're having here is not an honest conversation. What we're looking at is a corporatist. What we're looking at is a corrupt person. 
who defends the status quo, and they're mad that somebody's coming along here, Bernie Sanders, that will fundamentally change the status quo. But again, they're not even trying. Who's, what new people is this going to bring in? That's my question for people watching MSNBC. They're so lazy. They're just, like Whenever we talk on this show, I, really, I promise you guys I do my best to make arguments that are not just preaching to the choir. It's also saying stuff that like people who don't already agree with us they might hear what I'm saying and go, oh, that's an interesting point. I never thought of it like that. Hey, maybe Kyle just inched me in a direction, toward, inch, inched me slightly towards his position, slightly towards, you know, a further left social democratic position. What are they doing? There's no attempt to convince. There's no attempt to persuade. This is just claws out. Let's go right for Bernie's jugular. And it doesn't have to make sense by any stretch of the imagination. And nobody's going to keep them honest. And nobody's going to hold them accountable. He's anti-woman based on nothing. All of his policies are pro-women. All of them. All of them. He's anti-woman, and he makes my skin crawl, and I don't know why. They're usually last in the ratings, MSNBC, but it's amazing that they have any ratings at all when you look at this garbage content that's coming out of their network. If you want real substantive political talk, if you want talk about the policies, if you want you know, objectivity over personal sniping, well, there are real lefty outlets out there, and you happen to be watching one of them right now. Okay. Is it going to be one of those days where the fucking... Laptop beeps a thousand times. <laughs> it looks like it is. All right, let's go to John Stewart and uh, Rand Paul. Oh wait, my bad. Okay, here we go. So John Stewart absolutely decimated Rand Paul for being against the 9-11 Victims Healthcare Fund. Um, he's the person that blocked it, and he used the standard argument of, who's the paper? Who's the paper? Um, so you're going to see John Stewart here call out Rand Paul, and then immediately after that, I'm going to show you a separate clip where Rand Paul responded in the weak sauce way that you'd expect. Absolutely outrageous, and you'll pardon me if I'm not impressed in any way by Rand Paul's fiscal responsibility virtue signaling. Uh, Rand Paul presented tissue paper uh, uh, avoidance of the $1.5 trillion tax cut that added hundreds of billions of dollars to our deficit, and now he stands up at the last minute after 15 years of blood, sweat, and tears from the 9-11 community to say that it's all over now. Now we're going to balance the budget on the backs of the 9-11 first responder community. Brett, this is about what kind of society we have. At some point, we have to stand up for the people who have always stood up for us. And at this moment in time, maybe cannot stand up for themselves due to their illnesses and their injuries. And what Rand Paul did today on the Senate was outrageous. 
He is a guy that put us in hundreds of billions of dollars of debt. He was the 51st vote on that cut. And now he's going to tell us that a billion dollars a year over 10 years is just too much for us to handle. You know, there's some things that they have no trouble putting on the credit card. But somehow when it comes to the 9-11 first responder community, the cops, the firefighters, the construction workers, the volunteers, the survivors, all of a sudden, man, we got to go through this. This program has already been running for five years. No fraud. It was testified when we went in front of Congress. Uh, the special paymaster testified. No fraud, no waste, no abuse. Now, Mike Lee, we met in his office five years ago. He looked us in the eye. He looked Ray Pfeiffer in the eye, who unfortunately is no longer with us, and said he was going to look into it. He is the reason that we've had to go back again for this new one, and now he wants to put another cap on it that's going to make John Feel and all these other tenacious yet ill first responders drag themselves back to Washington to put their hats in their hands and beg for something that this country should have done 14 years ago. You know, we asked it's an abomination. I know John Stewart, and John Stewart is sometimes funny, sometimes informed, but in this case, he's neither funny nor informed. I've spent my entire Senate career putting forward pay-fors for any time spending has expanded. As, as, as soon ago as two weeks ago, I put forward a pay-for for the border funding. I put forward a pay-for for the disaster funding. I do this on every new bit of funding. So he's really not informed, and his name-calling just sort of exposes him as a, a left-winger, part of the left-wing mob that really isn't using his brain and is willing to call people names. It's, it's really kind of disgusting because... See, he pretended for years when he was on his comedy show to be somebody who could see both sides and see through the BS on both sides. Well, now he is the BS. The BS meters through the roof when you see him calling people names, calling people an abomination. When I'm asking something very reasonable, that an amendment be included to consider whether we should pay for this for taking money somewhere else in the budget, doesn't actually reduce the deficit, just keeps the deficit from getting bigger. It's a very reasonable thing. I've done it dozens and dozens of times, including on the tax bill. The left-wing mob says, oh, but you're for tax cuts, but you're not for doing anything to offset the tax cuts. There's something called PAYGO, and I was the leader in trying to keep that in the tax bill. It was in the tax bill when we passed it, and was later taken out of the, past, the tax bill over my objections. So the, the whole thing is but just you, you said it, is that true. when it was taken out, I mean, w or was it too late? I mean, there are no, arguments that they make. They're still in, actually. You're okay so. paying yeah, for, for, for tax but cuts, but not this stuff. Right. But they're misinformed, and they're either liars or misinformed. When we passed the tax bill, the pay-go provision was in the tax bill. So as we passed the bill, the next instruction should have been, by the end of the year, we would have had to cut spending. In a subsequent bill, they went ahead and got rid of the pay-go rules in some big, enormous spending bill. I objected to it, and I forced an amendment vote on it, and only nine people voted with me. But when I voted for the tax bill, it actually had provisions in it that said you'd have to cut spending if there's any less revenue. But the left-wing mob doesn't care about the truth. John Stewart doesn't care about the truth. It's all about me, 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 John Stewart. Look at me. I'm on TV. But here's well, the you, thing. Do you regret that tax bill vote then, Senator, given what happened on the pay-go thing? No, because I voted for a tax bill with the pay-go provision know, in it. I know, but now knowing that they took that out after you regret no, I that regret, vote. No, I regret that 91 of my colleagues voted to take pay-go out when I didn't, but you shouldn't blame me for that. That is complete and utter horseshit from Rand Paul.
So this reminds me of when the Democrats voted to authorize the war in Iraq, and then they turned around and said, no, 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 I wasn't for the war. I was just giving Bush the authorization to decide that maybe we should or shouldn't go to war. I didn't know that when I voted for it that that meant we were definitely going to go to war. I just voted for the war to give him the choice and the option that maybe we should or shouldn't go to war. That's an actual argument that people have made as to where they try to wiggle out of their, their responsibility for voting for the Iraq war. Now, this is exactly what Rand Paul is doing here. Because, you know what? He knew damn well what was going to happen. He knew damn well what was going to happen. Because every time they've done these massive tax cut bills in the past for corporations and for the rich, they didn't pay for it. It went – it directly hit the debt and the deficit, 100%. Now, here's the other point, and here's how you know he's lying. Rand Paul argued at the time. He didn't say, oh, no, 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 we have to pay for it. This is crazy. He didn't say that. What he said was, it's okay because it actually won't add to the debt and the deficit. That's what he said repeatedly. He didn't say this will add to the debt and the deficit, and I, we need to make sure that it doesn't do that. He didn't say that. What he said was, oh, all the people on the left are liars when they say that this is going to add to the debt and the deficit. I think it will not add to the debt and the deficit. Now, why did he say that? Because that's the standard far right-wing economic approach, where they think when you do trickle-down economics, when you do deregulation, when you cut taxes for the rich and when you cut taxes for corporations, oh, that will actually increase revenue to the government because when you cut taxes, the private sector will expand so much that even though these corporations and these rich people are paying a lower percentage tax rate, that will be net more money overall than if you just had a higher tax rate. This is Art Laffer 101. And this is what Rand Paul deep, even to this day, Rand Paul believes that. Because he went on in that same clip, and you didn't see it there, but he went on to claim, this, this has been reducing the deficit. No, it hasn't. No, it hasn't. There's been a massive, gigantic increase to the deficit. So you're just full of shit, and you're trying to weasel your way out of what you did instead of taking responsibility for it. Listen, Rand, at least own it. You know what I mean? Like, at least own it and argue for it instead of trying to be a little weasel and get out of it. At least say, yeah, you know what? Yes, you got me. I, uh, I'm not in favor of funding health care for 9-11 first responders. I'm not in favor of that simply because of the cost. Instead of trying to make this convoluted argument of like, oh, well, you know, it's I always do this with Pago and... Well, it, I, I actually did say we should pay for the tax cuts and make sure that that doesn't add to the deficit, even though I knew damn well that my Republican colleagues weren't going to pay for it, and I was still okay with it. It's a matter of priorities, dipshit. It's a matter of priorities, and it's clear that whenever we're talking about an issue for regular people, whenever we're talking about health care, whenever we're talking about education, whenever we're talking about social safety net programs, whenever we're talking about, you know, looking after 9-11 first responders, that's when you trot out those arguments. But when it comes to you value your beloved tax cuts above 
something being deficit neutral. Because you knew when you voted for this tax cut package, you knew what was going to happen. You knew that ultimately your party wouldn't care if it added to the debt and the deficit because you value looking after the rich and corporations way more than you value um, making sure the deficit doesn't go up. And the history of the Republican Party shows that, certainly the history of the Republican Party in the modern era from Reagan and onward, where they always record debt and deficit under those guys. So John Stewart did a great job there, and Rand Paul's being a little weasel, trying to say he's a, he's a bullshitter, he's a liar. Nonsense. John Stewart simply cares about getting these people their health care without you using these weird, tricky, nonsense parliamentary procedures to block it and then trying to weasel your way out of it and explain it away afterwards. Okay. Now let's go to the Republican snowflakes who are against free speech in the House of Representatives. So I love this next story because it busts up so many myths about, um, you know, who's in favor of freedom and who are the real snowflakes. So Republican congressmen are doubling down on using a parliamentary procedure and an authoritarian tactic to shut down criticism of Trump in the House of Representatives. So they went to their little Fox News safe space here to make the argument. Let's watch and then we'll discuss. Every single member of this institution, Democratic and Republican, should join us in condemning the president's racist tweets. I was just going to give the general speaker of the House if she would like to rephrase that comment. I have cleared my remarks as a parliamentarian before I read them. Can I have her words be taken down? Can I make a point of order the gentlewoman's words are unparliamentary and ready to be taken down? That was Congressman Doug Collins calling on House Speaker Nancy Pelosi in an explosive showdown on this last Tuesday. The speaker in a speech on the House floor labeled as racist the president's tweet telling the progressive Democratic congresswomen known as the squad to, quote, go back and fix the crime-infested places from which they came. The Speaker's move declared a violation of the chamber's rules of decorum. I'm back with Congressman Doug Collins, ranking member of the House Judiciary Committee, gearing up to question uh, Bob Mueller on Wednesday. Congressman, explain what just went down there. There is a certain decorum that is required uh, on the House floor. There certainly is, and as the, as the leader of the House, the Speaker is the one in charge, actually, of our rules. And for someone who very much values the debate and the decorum of the institution, we can have vehement debates. We can disagree violently even in our language, but we can, there are certain things that we cannot say. And drawing on the personalities of the president and using that, it just shows how, frankly, degraded the Democratic Party has. The speaker ought to be embarrassed right now. She should not look back on this as a, a victory. It was a, it was a moment of, of, frankly, that brought a dishonor to the House because we, the body never voted to say that she didn't break the rules. In fact, she was told she broke the rules. But what she forced her party to do was take away her punishment. So she basically says, yep, I broke the rules, but I'll 
use my folks to say that I don't have to be punished for that, which meant that the words will be stricken and she couldn't speak anymore on the floor. This shows you how dysfunctional this Democratic majority has been. They have done nothing except just run roughshod over the institutional processes in the House. Oh, boy, where do I begin with this? First of all, that's not true, that last thing. is They've done nothing. These Democrats are not even focused on, like, the policy and stuff. Democrats literally just passed a $15 minimum wage. Like, they just did it right before this asshole comes out and does this segment. They're not doing anything. What do you mean they're not doing anything? Focus on the people. They did that. You're not doing that. You're blocking that. They did that. Okay, that's the first point. Second point is, um, oh, God, this is so delicious here. These are the people who have nonstop been yelping about, we believe in free speech on college campuses. We think you have a right to be politically incorrect. Why Why do the lefty snowflakes always want to be politically correct? We're in favor of being politically incorrect. And, uh, you know, Trump literally had the social media summit not that long ago where he was saying, we do believe in free speech and, um, you know, we're going to protect your right to free speech, not just on college campuses, but on social media where they're silencing conservative voices. They've, like, cloaked themselves in this issue. And, you know, hey, it's an issue that lands. It's very popular to talk about this issue all the time. However, you'll notice they only trot it out when it helps their cause. They're not actually principled, because if you're principled, you believe in it across the board. They most certainly do not, which is why the same people also push for anti-BDS restrictions in various states across the country, where they say, oh, if you say that you support a boycott of Israel, you'll get no government contracts for anything ever. A clear crackdown on political speech, which is unconstitutional, and courts have ruled it as such. They don't care. They support it. So do they really believe in free speech? Look at what he just said. They quote, talking about Pelosi here, she quote, violated the rules of decorum, quote, brought dishonor to the House. And then he literally says at one point, this is a Republican congressperson, he said, there are certain things you cannot say. There are certain things you cannot say. I believe in free speech. There are certain things you cannot say. I believe in free speech. There are certain things you cannot say. Which, which one is it? Which one is it? Okay, they are trotting out a rule, I kid you not, from the 1800s to try to shut up criticism of Trump here. The rule is from the 1800s. And the idea is you can't call the president racist. Hmm. What was going on in the 1800s that would prompt such a rule to exist? Hmm. I wonder what was going on. If anybody could tell me the thing that was existing in the 1800s where they would come up with such a ridiculous rule, which is literally an authoritarian rule. It tells you what you can and cannot say, criticisms you cannot make. I wonder what issue it was that existed back then that would make it so such a rule exists. And they're, with a straight face, they're trotting out a rule from the 1800s. 
to try to shut down criticism of Trump. The reality is they have no real response. What do you do when you have no real response? Just try to shut the conversation down. Shut up. I have nothing to say in response to that, and since I can't make a counterpoint, shut up. You're not allowed to say that. What would have been hilarious if they went, oh, okay, I called him a racist. You're trotting out an old rule to say I can't call him a racist, and you're trying to get it stricken from the record. Uh, I retract that. He's a bigot. They probably would have done the same thing. He said, ah, you can't do that one either. Okay, fine. I take that back. He's a xenophobe. Ah, you can't say that one either. See, this is what they this is what they do, man. They can't form an argument. So it's just shut down my political opponents for saying something that's correct in this instance. Now I'm no fan of Nancy Pelosi. I despise Nancy Pelosi. And this is a super low bar for her to get over. Because really this is it's toothless to just give in a speech. Oh, I think he's a racist. Wow, how brave of you. But it also, in this case, in reference to these particular tweets, is totally true. He told he told U.S. congresswomen to go back to their country. They're Americans. Three of the four were born in America. Even the one that wasn't born in America lived the American dream and worked her way from a refugee camp all the way to Congress. Go back to your country. You and I both know if it was somebody with the exact same politics as those justice Democrats, but it was a, a white man, there's no way he would have said go back to your country. Because in his mind, it's, oh, you know, you have darker skin. That's not fully American now, is it? And they cannot make a counter-argument. So they go right to, you're not allowed to say that. You, you broke the rules of decorum. What happened? Again, I thought you guys were the politically incorrect people. I, Good sir, how dare you violate the rules of decorum? We here believe in the rules of decorum, and we believe you cannot bring dishonor to this wonderful institution of the House of Representatives. So all of a sudden, they turn into, like, you know, puritanical, censorious, anti-free speech goons. Because it's politically convenient for them to do that right now, and they have no real response. So next time they try to say, you're a snowflake, you're against free speech, look at all these pink-haired lefties on college campuses, you remind them that we're not just talking about, like, awkward teenagers in this instance. We're talking about elected Republican congressmen who have wholly embraced an authoritarian anti-free speech rule to shut up criticism of the president. And they even go as far as to bitch about dishonor and decorum. Oh, please. You guys are the party of the dude who, you know tweet vomits every night while he watches Fox News shows. And he tweeted us to the brink of war on multiple occasions. And you're going to talk about decorum? (laughs) You could either be the people who embrace being politically incorrect, or you could be the people who embrace decorum. Again, you you have to pick one. You can't have it both ways. So this is... There's delicious irony and hypocrisy in this story. And... um, 
it goes without saying, no, they shouldn't take it out of the record when there's criticism of Trump that they don't agree with. And that is all they're doing in this instance. Okay. Now we're going to go to one of the world's dumbest pundits, Rush Limbaugh, and he's going to weigh in on this situation. So Rush Limbaugh commented on the anti-Ilhan Omar chant, send her back, that happened at a Trump rally. And um, he somehow managed to be an even worse person than Trump in his answer here. Well, I, I heard you talking on your show, Rush, about the president and his rally a couple of nights ago. And um, at one point, the crowd was yelling, uh, was chanting, send her back, uh, regarding Congresswoman Omar. Yesterday, the president made it clear he disagrees with that. He said he wasn't very happy with that. What do you make of that? Much ado about nothing. I, I don't really have time here to, because I spent 20 minutes on this uh, on the radio yesterday. This really irritates me. There's two sets of rules. The Democrats never have to denounce Antifa. What's Antifa do? Antifa's blowing up cities. Antifa is attacking people. Ditto Black Lives Matter. Ilhan Omar herself hates Israel. She's been uttering anti-Semitic statements. The House comes up with a resolution that doesn't even mention her name. And yet some people at Trump rally make some innocent little chat bored of fun and Washington comes to a halt, and everybody gets up, oh, my God, oh, my God, did you hear what? It's nothing. You know, we, we, we have this, this two sets of rules circumstance here, and all this is is designed to get conservative Republicans acting as though they're guilty of racism, bigotry, sexism, and homophobia, and it's all made up. None of us, we conservatives love people, Steve. We want the best for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> you want the best for everybody? Are you also defending those um, detention facilities with kids in cages? Have you done that, Rush? I'm pretty sure you have. We want the best for everybody. That's why we're cool with kids in cages, and we also are in favor of every single war where we're bombing innocent people all the time, and we're also in favor of a for-profit health insurance system, which leaves 30 to 40 million people uninsured and 30 to 45,000 people dying every year because they don't have access to basic health care. We want what's best for everybody except those people and maybe the minimum wage people, too, because we, want, we don't want the minimum wage to be a living wage, so if you work full-time... Yeah, you shouldn't necessarily make enough money to survive. I mean, let's not go crazy here or anything. <laughs> so we want what's best for everybody except, you know, a lot of a lot of people, actually. Ah, you're so full of shit. You're so full of shit. So um, I find it hilarious that he's so caught up in tribalism that he, he has no rebuttal but to say, You big about Antifa! But Antifa. What? It Listen, it is really not that difficult, Rush, I promise you. Donald Trump himself said, okay, yeah, when they're chanting, send her back, 
I didn't I didn't necessarily agree with it. I mean, maybe that goes a little too far. Now, of course, Trump's trying to cover his own ass. Let's not get it twisted. But even he was not dumb enough to be like, yeah, yeah, that's right. Deport U.S. Congress people. Yeah. So Rush Limbaugh has no rebuttal, doesn't address it at all, doesn't say, you know what, reel it in a little bit. This nativism and this bigotry is going too far. He goes, Antifa. I mean, you should change your name to Dodgy McDodgington, because that's all you did right there. And it's also fundamentally untrue, because Democrats are asked to answer for Venezuela, and they're asked to answer for Cuba. So this idea of like, well, two sets of rules, the Democrats are not asked to answer for anything at all. You guys accuse us of being pro-Venezuela. <laughs> you said, oh yeah? Well, if, if socialism is so good, if Bernie Sanders is so good, how come Maduro is so bad? And by the way, let's be clear, those things are not even analogous because we're not pro-Venezuela, we're not pro-Cuba, that's not, we don't want any kind of authoritarian-style government. What we want is a social democratic system. So we're, the left is always called to answer for things, and oftentimes it doesn't even make sense the things we're called to answer for. The thing Trump was called to answer for, and that you guys are being questioned about, that is right in your wheelhouse. I mean, Donald Trump literally tweeted that, uh, why, don't they go, why don't they go back to where they came from? So when they chanted his rally, send her back, that absolutely is the logical extension of the shit they've been hearing him say week in and week out. And because you're such a tribal dipshit, you can't just be like, okay, you know what? Mm, that's not cool. Not cool. Goes a little too far. And it's re- again, it's really not that hard. Here, you want me to play this stupid game, which, by the way, I don't think we should play, and I think it's ridiculous, but I denounce any and all offensive violence, whether that comes from the right, whether that comes from Antifa. If it's offensive violence, I'm against it. Not that hard. Now, notice, Rush Limbaugh did not say and will not say, yeah, I denounce people who want to deport U.S. citizens who are U.S. Congress people. He didn't say that. He didn't say that at all. And he wouldn't say that, no matter how much you press him. But what about Antifa? That was his answer. Um, and he said it was, it was an innocent chant that was fun. It was born of fun, I believe is what he said. It was innocent. It's innocent to tell U.S. Congress people to, you know, get deported, to send back U.S. Congress people. That's innocent? That's fun? I'd hate to know what else you find fun. Um, And the final point I'll make is, it's hilarious because during a rant in which he's like decrying the idea that the left is always making false accusations of racism and bigotry. They're always doing that. They're always screaming bigot and racist. And they're false accusations, okay? They do it too much. In that exact same rant, what does he do? He says, Ilhan Omar hates Israel and is an anti-Semite. So as he's going after the left, saying they're doing false cries of bigotry, in this case, by the way, they are accurate cries of bigotry. Because if you tell U.S. citizens and U.S. congresspeople to go back to their country, go back to where they came from, what what other word is there for that? That is bigotry. 
But as he's decrying what he thinks are false cries of bigotry, he does a false cry of bigotry, which sums up Rush Limbaugh better than anything else. I mean, the dude is just, he's as dumb as they come, he's as ignorant as they come, and perhaps most importantly, he's as hypocritical as they come. He is totally unaware and totally, you know, unable to do even bare minimum self-perception and self-criticism and analysis. He's just fundamentally incapable of it. So in the same rant, he's decrying what he thinks are false cries of bigotry. He does a false cry of bigotry and calls Ilhan Omar an anti-Semite because Ilhan Omar dared to say, hey, APAC is buying politicians to do their bidding. So the Israel lobby is buying politicians to do the bidding of Israel, which is only 100% factually accurate. keep going. I want to give you a little sampling of what it would be like to be Ilhan Omar, just so, just so you understand what it's like and, and the kind of stuff that you deal with on a regular basis. Um, it's really some stunning stuff here. So the more popular that Justice Democrats become, the more unhinged the attacks on them become. And I just want to walk you through here really quickly, basically, what it would be like to be Ilhan Omar and to really digest the vicious hatred out there, irrational hatred out there for her, solely because of who she is. So um, here's a tweet. It's from a user named Donna Jacobson. She says, aside from all her deception and cheating, Ilhan tweeted that she thinks, quote, all white males should be in chains until they submit to Islam. This is an ISIS terrorist sympathizer. Get her out of our government. And then they even go as far as to put, you know, call the ethics committee and they put the number and all that stuff. And as you can see there, 1.6, 1,600 retweets, 1,400 likes. Now, this is just a little sampling here. In fact, I'll give you one more. Um, RT uh, tweeted this out, but the story is, you'll see, the story is, political jihad is their game, said a now-deleted meme targeting the progressive squad on an official Republican page. Official Republican page. So this is the Illinois Republican page, and they tweeted out, instead of, you know, how they call themselves the squad, I don't know who came up with that, I don't know who ran with that. It's a little cringy if you ask me. But they changed it to, the Jihad Squad. The Jihad Squad. So, listen, for people like us, most of the people who watch this show, you look at stuff like this, and it's so over the top that it's almost funny, because it's like, how can anybody, number one, come up with this, number two, run with it, and number three, think it's even remotely serious? Like, you could just dismiss this instantly and laugh it off and be like, whoa, is this dumb. But you have to understand, 
there's a strong contingent in this country which actually hates Ilhan Omar and the squad. And they will pretty much instantly believe anything that they're told about them. I mean, the president of the United States has gone out there and said that Ilhan Omar is pro-Al-Qaeda. One of the first of two U.S. Muslim congresswomen and the president of the United States is saying she's pro-Al-Qaeda based on a totally mangled, out-of-context BS claim where Ilhan Omar was talking about 9-11 and she basically said, hey, listen, don't blame all Muslims because some people did something. But they took out that quote of some people did something and act like she was saying, like, 9-11, whatever, bro. It's just some people did something. Not a big deal. That isn't at all what she was saying, but they made it seem like that. So you have what's basically equivalent to an incitement campaign against Ilhan Omar. And you can make up any claim you want. It can be as insane as humanly possible, and many people will believe it, and it will spread like a virus. And then, by the way, here's the kicker. The death threats have shot through the roof against Ilhan Omar as a result of this stuff. So it's dangerous. And I will say, when they have no argument at all, at all, these are the kind of tactics they revert to. Making stuff up like Ilhan tweeted, she thinks all white males should be in chains until they submit to Islam. They can't actually make a coherent argument against what her beliefs are. So you just smear her, and you just make stuff up, and you're as vicious as humanly possible, and you put her in danger. And you'll notice this with Trump, too. Trump can't attack them on the merits, so he just smears them in as vicious a way as possible and says, you know, they hate America. This is coming from a guy who ran on Make America Great Again, meaning it is not great right now, it's terrible, and we need to try to fix it. That's exactly what Ilhan says. Now, they disagree in the way to fix it, But she criticizes America because she wants to fix it. But she doesn't get the benefit of the doubt of, oh, when she criticizes America, it's to make it better. People who are, yes, bigoted say, oh, she criticized America because she hates America. Love it or leave it. Love it or leave it. What can people say that to Trump when he criticizes America? Love it or leave it. Why are you criticizing it? You don't love America? I guess you should leave then. This stuff is dangerous. By the way, what have been their main issues since getting into Congress? For Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, her first bill was to crack down on usury, and she's working with Bernie Sanders on that. So what does that mean? It basically is trying to ban loan sharking when people get screwed over by financial institutions who are basically price gouging them. So it bans, I think it makes the highest interest rate can go, I think 12%. That's what she's working on. That would not only help the overwhelming majority of the American people, that would help the overwhelming majority of Trump voters. So that's what Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is working on. Notice, Trump didn't say Dickie McGee's act about that. Why? Because you can't argue against that, because what she's doing is helping everybody, including many Trump voters. Ilhan Omar, what's she been working on? Very simply, her main issues, issue to this point, foreign policy. She's led the charge on saying, hey, we've got to get out of these stupid wars. Hey, let's not get into another war with Iran, with Venezuela, 
So stop and think about it. The main thing Ilhan Omar is working uh, on day in and day out is one of the things that Trump, in part, campaigned on. And all Trump's voters love Trump for that. Yeah, Trump says we need to get out of all these dumb wars and rebuild America. I'm for that. Ilhan Omar comes along and says the exact same thing and actually fights for it. And they hate her. I wonder why. Listen. We have to be vigilant and we have to fight back. This is why you don't back down to these bullies. Because they're paper tigers. There's nothing they could say that's actually true. There's nothing that, that they can say that's actually convincing to people with a certain minimum IQ level. So when they fight you, you fight them back. You don't back down. And you explain to them why they're full of shit, they're liars, and oh yeah, by the way, I'm even fighting for the people who hate me. I'm making sure everybody gets health care. I'm making sure everybody has a decent education. I'm going to stop the financial institutions from ripping you off. I'm going to end the wars. So we have to keep on with this battle. But make no mistake about it, guys. There are some people out there who are, as I call them, TFG. You all know what that means by now. Tell everybody in the comments section who's new to Secular Talk what TFG means. But there are plenty of TFGs out there. We don't need to back down to them because they have no point, they have no argument, and all they have is fear-mongering tactics and lies, which is why they come up with stuff like, all white males should be in chains until they submit to Islam. The idea that Ilhan Omar would say that, the idea is many people say, oh, she's trying to bring Sharia to this country. Ilhan Omar marched and danced in an LGBTQ pride parade. Does that seem like an ultra-fundamentalist to you? I'd say no, you idiot. I'd say no. So they got nothing, man. They got nothing on them, and that's why they'll continue to be more deranged and more unhinged, and we just have to be vigilant and strong in our responses. Okay, next. Actually, wrong. You know what? It is a quick break time. When we come back, we have Joe Biden, who has become insanely brazen in his corruption. We're going to talk about that. Um, Then we take Bet on My Stork back to the woodshed. He is going back to the woodshed. And Tucker Carlson smeared Bernie Sanders. We will respond to that. You don't want to miss any of this stuff. The rest of the show is lovely. Stay right there. We'll be right back.
son of a bitch. We should make lyrics to my intro song. And the lyrics should be me singing exactly like I just did. Imagine if that song had the lyrics of just me over and over saying, Son of a bitch. Might become the greatest song of all time. Might uh, make its way to the charts, don't you think? Yeah, I don't either, but still. (laughs) All right. uh, Joe Biden is getting worse and worse. So Joe Biden has become insanely brazen in his corruption. It's almost, uh, you know, you almost can't wrap your mind around it because he obviously really, really, really wants to be president, and he's just going about it the exact wrong way. He's guaranteeing that he's going to tank in the polls even more than he already has. So the American Prospect explains the following. If Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden meet on the debate stage in Detroit later this month, it's not likely to be as cordial as it went in Miami. The two presidential candidates have been sparring intensely over Medicare for All, Sanders' signature plan for universal health care. Biden has rejected Medicare for All as risky and unrealistic, while Sanders defended it in a July 17 speech where he also issued a pledge challenging all 2020 candidates to deny contributions of $200 or more from PACs, lobbyists, or executives of health insurance or pharmaceutical companies. Quote, when it comes to health care, the insurance and drug industries have been able to control the political process, Sanders said in the speech. A top member of Biden's brain trust fits that description. Steve Ricchetti, referred to as Biden's campaign chairman in a published report last month, was a longtime lobbyist for health care and other corporate clients. He worked for then-Vice President Biden as a counselor and then his uh, chief of staff, as a counselor and then his chief of staff, and now for, presidential, for his presidential campaign. Ricchetti founded and ran his own lobbying firm with his brother. He personally represented drug makers, Novartis, Eli Lilly, and Sanofi, Sanofi, The latter two are among the three major insulin manufacturers, as well as health IT company Navamedics, now Navanet. What's with these fucking names, dude? And the American Hospital Association. Biden's campaign... So, okay. Let's understand exactly what's going on here and what we just learned. Joe Biden's campaign is literally being run by a big pharma and healthcare company lobbyist. That's not hyperbole. That's not an exaggeration. There's no spin on that. There's no, you know, flavor added to it. That's a stone cold fact. Biden's campaign is being run by a big pharma and healthcare company lobbyist. And the dude even worked for the worst offenders when it comes to pharmaceutical companies. The ones jacking up the price of insulin. Price gouging people. So every time Joe Biden comes out there now, as he's been doing repeatedly, and viciously attacks Medicare for All, and lies about Medicare for All, and strawmans Medicare for All, it's because 
he both ideologically is against it, but also because the person pulling the strings behind the scenes is literally somebody who's profited massively from for-profit healthcare companies and from big pharma. Joe, how dumb are you? Are you trying to lose? I mean, it's got to be that you're trying to lose. Because this is next-level corruption, son. Like, at least some of the other corporate centrist Democrats are smart enough to try to hide it, are smart enough to jump through the hoop to be like, me, bro? I'm against lobbyists. Joe Biden's like, no, I got I got one of those uh, running my campaign. Joe Biden came out the other day and gave a speech where he said, uh, you know, I, I expect the Republicans to come after Obamacare, but I, in my wildest dreams, wouldn't expect fellow Democrats to be against Obamacare to try to repeal it and replace it. So, in other words, he's lying. What he's doing is trying to take the fact that Barack Obama has a high approval rating and use that name to muddy the waters in the healthcare debate and try to pretend like people who are for Medicare for All are also for a separate bill prior to Medicare for All where first we have to totally repeal Obamacare, which, of course, is not at all how it works, and nobody on the left is arguing for that. But Joe Biden has no real point he has no real argument. So what is he doing? He's listening to his you know, healthcare lobbyist buddy who's as corrupt as they come, and he's running with it. You want to talk about political instincts being out of whack? All Joe Biden had to do in this election to be a serious, viable candidate is also to go out there and pretend to be Bernie Sanders. That's all he would have had to do. Is if he, from the very beginning of this campaign, said, you know what, it's clear where the country's at right now, and I want to represent the country where they are. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to fight for Medicare for all. I'm going to fight for free college. I'm going to fight for a living wage. I'm going to fight for a Green New Deal. I'm going to end these wars. And I'm going to represent the American people because that's my job. I'm middle class Joe. Middle class Joe Biden. Yeah. If he just pretended properly, he would have been a viable candidate. You want to know why? Because he already has the most name recognition of everybody running. So when you have the most name recognition and you marry that with a strategy that makes sense, you would have been a, a force to be reckoned with. But he's doing the exact opposite. He's like, he's like, okay, where are the healthcare lobbyists at? We're the same vultures and swamp creatures who've been ripping off Americans for decades. I will stack my campaign with said people. This is totally unacceptable. But you know what? It's transparent. And you know what the deal is. You know you're not going to get changed with Joe Biden. He's going into the negotiation saying, let's slightly expand Obamacare, or maybe on his better days, let's get a public option. You know what you're going to get if that's your starting point? Dick. You're going to get absolutely nothing. So listen, here's my advice to Bernie Sanders. In, in, um, wait, I don't know if Bernie's on the stage with Joe Biden in the next debate. Is he? I don't know yet. I know they released the lineups for the debate. I don't know if Bernie is on the stage with Joe. But either way, take out the brass knuckles, Bernster. Take out the brass knuckles. Because if you'll notice what happened in the last debate, Kamala went for Joe Biden's jugular, and then Kamala got a big bump. So what Bernie needs to understand is, because they're coming at Bernie now. I'm a big fan of the counterpunch. I don't like to be the one throwing the first punch, um, even to people I massively ideological disagree with, massively ideologically disagree with. Um, but Biden has thrown so many punches at Bernie and thrown so many haymakers at his policy ideas that now, now it's time. 
The gloves are off. Take out the brass knuckles. Grab a blowtorch. Maybe a hatchet. And go to work. Because this guy, as soon as everybody knows what's really going on with Biden, and as soon as people realize he's not just Obama's buddy, that's when it goes, they go, oh, yeah, that's unfortunate. Not really for that guy. But you've got to expose him in order to do that. You have to expose him. And there's no better way to expose somebody than to let them know, hey, there are lobbyists literally running his campaign. So you think he's going to fundamentally change a system that the people controlling his campaign massively benefit from and will continue to benefit from? There's no way. There's no way he'd change that system, and everybody needs to know that. Okay. All right, Beto O'Rourke. He's in a similar boat to um, Joe Biden in how shitty he is. So Beto O'Rourke was hawking his really terrible half-measure health care plan, and here's what he's tweeted about it. We don't have to make the false choice between a status quo where millions of Americans are uninsured and millions more can't afford their prescriptions and a plan that would force 180 million Americans off their insurance. That's why I support Medicare for America. So uh, do you see what he's doing there? He's trying to say, well, the status quo and Medicare for all are equally bad. That's the argument he's making because he, he says, Hey, under our current system, there's so many uninsured people, and that's not cool. But under Medicare for All system, 180 million Americans would lose their insurance. Now, what is he not telling you? Of course, he's not telling you the most important parts. Um, Everybody would be covered, and it would cost significantly less, and you'd have better health outcomes under Medicare for All system. All that's happening is the unnecessary, rapacious, for-profit, price-gouging middleman is being removed. So, in other words, Bernie's plan is let's eliminate the mafia who's shaking you down. That's his plan. Beto O'Rourke's idea is to do a false equivalence and say, our current system is bad, but also, you know, Medicare for All would be bad because, like, change happens. And isn't change icky? And let me fearmonger about people losing their private health insurance. Here's what they're not going to lose. They're not going to lose their doctor. And they're not going to lose their hospital. In fact, they can get to go wherever the hell they want. How about that? How do you like them apples? So, so, this was such a bad tweet from Beto O'Rourke that even Bill de Blasio dunked on him and did it pretty well. So here's what Bill said. If someone proposed a radical idea called public education today, Beto would try to warn us that 180 million Americans would be kicked out of their schools. Let's leave the lazy fear-mongering tactics to Trump. Damn, the Yeti Bill de Blasio with a straight-up stone-cold stunner on Bet on My Stork. Oh, how's that feel, Beto? How's that feel? You just got stone-cold stunnered by a Yeti. A literal Yeti just owned your ass. Wow. There's nothing to even add to that. That is a very good tweet. (laughs) That is a very good tweet. 
And Bill de Blasio is so far down in the polls that he's like, I got nothing to lose. I'm just going just gonna to start throwing haymakers at everybody. And it's not a bad idea. It's not a bad idea. Maybe you claw your way back up to 2%. I mean, it's possible. But anyway, uh, what I find even more funny about this is how big of a liar Beto O'Rourke is. Because if you guys remember, and the longtime listeners of Secular Talk will remember this, there was a time when we were all happy about Beto O'Rourke. Why? Because he was running against Ted Cruz uh, for the Senate, and he was making further left-wing arguments when he was running for the Senate. He was. He was acting like he was further left. So here's a great example of that here. Look at this. This is from um, 2017, June 15, 2017. A single-payer Medicare for All program is the best way to ensure all Americans get the health care they need. And there's more examples of that, too. I'm just giving you one here, but Beto O'Rourke used to openly argue for a Medicare for All system. And then as time has gone by, he's backed away from it a little more, backed away from it a little more, backed away from it a little more. And now he's at the point where he openly conflates our current destructive, disgusting system where people die from not being covered to a Medicare for All system. And he acts like they're equally bad. And he's not in favor of Medicare for all. So, in other words, you know what Beto is? He's a slimy, sleazy, standard politician who's a liar who's just trying to find a path to get elected. He doesn't believe in anything he's saying. Because there was a time in 2017 where he's like, Medicare for all, obviously. And now he's like, Medicare for all, that's like just as bad as our current system. So, now you know who he is. Now you know who he is. He's so bad and he's so silly that even Bill de Blasio can dunk on him. So, Beto can go out there and do his, you know, fake Obama shtick. But I got bad news for him. As you're pretending to be Barack Obama with how you speak and how you're measured and how you talk and how you thank everybody every time they ask you a question, you could do your uh, fake Obama voice, but even on that front you're losing because Pete Buttigieg does a better fake Obama than you do. I mean, it's true. It is true. I don't like Pete Buttigieg. His politics are terrible, and they're very centrist and corporatist, but he does a better fake Obama than you do. So, uh, you know, I think uh, maybe what you all should do is uh, get the hell out of the primary because you're polling very low, and uh, it is it's not a good look. You're ruining uh, any chances you might have for getting elected to any kind of office in the future, even dog catcher, because you're all uh, really, really bad at this. All right, Tucker Carlson smeared Bernie Sanders. And we are going to talk about it, bitch. Show me that video, mofo. Here we go. So Tucker Carlson smeared Bernie Sanders on his show with an inaccurate point about his campaign. Um, so I'm going to break that down for you. But he also, in this clip you're going to see, pulls the king of all false equivalence arguments where he says, you know, there's really no choice on the Democratic side. All the candidates are fundamentally the same, which is a claim that, as you know, is totally ridiculous. So let's watch and we'll discuss that too. 
Well, there are more than 20 Democrats campaigning to be next president of the United States, and with so many options, you think the Democratic voters would have a lot of choices, but really they don't have a lot of choices. They only control the cosmetic appearance of their next candidate. They can decide whether their nominee will be running to be the first Hispanic president or the first female president or the first gay president. But in everything that actually matters, in other words, what they believe, they're pretty much the same. All of them will be running on a platform of open borders, open prisons, free health care for illegals, etc. And all of them have the same tone of their campaign. They all spend the election campaign asserting their superiority to the country. They deserve to be president not simply because they're better than Donald Trump, but because morally they're better than you too. On the campaign trail, Bernie Sanders has been zealously demanding that other people and other businesses increase their minimum wage to $15 an hour. For example, he's accused Walmart of paying its employees, quote, starvation wages. He's also celebrated workers who have protested and gone on strike to demand the pay increase right now. Watch this. I want to applaud the thousands and thousands of workers from coast to coast, people who work in McDonald's, people who work at Burger King, people who work all over this country, who have stood up over the years and demanded that the federal minimum wage be raised to a living wage, 15 bucks an hour. Okay, well, he couldn't have been clearer about that. So you would expect in the way that he lives, Sanders would set a good example for the rest of the country. But it turns out, and you may have guessed this, Bernie is so confident that he is a deeply good person and his cause is just, that he's just not shackled to the same rules that he wants everyone else to follow. For example, right now, Sanders' campaign is battling its own campaign workers. They say they're being paid the same starvation wages that Walmart employees get, less than 13 bucks an hour. Huh. Sanders hasn't budged, though. If they aren't happy, they can go work on another campaign or they can quit at his position. No, it's not, and you're full of shit. So let's break this down here. Um, so Bernie Sanders' campaign, it was the first of any campaign ever to unionize. You want to know why? Because Bernie actually believes in what he talks about. He's pro-union. So the idea of his campaign workers unionizing, he's all for All for it. Not only that, it is a fact. Bernie Sanders' campaign workers get the best pay and the best benefits of any campaign anywhere. Full stop. Now, here are the details. The campaign and the union both confirmed that um, they have a collective bargaining agreement that was ratified in May. And it said, get this, the base pay rate for field staff at $36,000 a year. Okay? So that salary works out to... um, under $15 an hour based on a 60-hour work week. So here's what happened. When they started the campaign, they just thought, oh, we'll just have, you know, regular work hours. And if you do the regular work hours, that amount of money works out to $15 an hour. But as often happens with campaigns, a lot of the people who are working end up working way more than standard work hours. So they ended up working like 60 hours a week. So... Since it was salary, they did end up making less than $15 an hour. But then immediately when they learned about what was going on, they meaning, you know, Bernie's campaign manager and Bernie, they came out and they immediately said, okay, we're going to guarantee you $15 an hour for no matter, you know, how many hours you work. What happened in response? The union rejected it. So let's be clear. 
So the original idea was $36,000 a year, which is above and beyond what any other campaign does. Okay, I'm going to get to the other benefits in just a second here. Um, and it was just going to be standard hours. But what happened was, as often happens on these campaigns, is people just ended up working longer hours. So since that was the case, that $36,000 a year ended up being a little bit below $15 an hour. But the second they learned about that, Bernie was like, well, we're going to make it $15 an hour. Raise the pay. Let's do that. And when the union rejected it, what was the next step that, that the Bernie campaign did? They said, okay, listen, if you guys rejected this, we are still not comfortable with people making less than $15 an hour. So we'll make it so that you work a normal work week. And so your pay will equal $15 an hour. In the meantime, while we try to, you know, negotiate and work out, you know, what the final agreement will be. So do you understand that? That's how much they believe in this idea of a living wage. They believe in it so much that they said, the second they learned some people were working too long, they said, okay, we'll guarantee $15 an hour. And the union said no, because they wanted more. And then the Bernie campaign turned around and said, okay, that's fine. And we'll keep negotiating. But until we do that, we're going to make sure you work a normal work week in terms of hours. So you do already immediately start making $15 an hour. That's what's going on. So the way that this has been reported in mainstream media, they're just doing a smear job. Tucker Carlson here is running with it as if Bernie's a hypocrite when Bernie's like the fucking least hypocritical person on the planet and it's fucking beyond obvious. Um, and then also, let, let me add this because this is incredibly important. In addition to that pay scale, here's what workers get. Full health insurance without a premium, mental health benefits, parental leave options, a gas card for use while on the job, and other options not traditionally available to campaign staff. So best pay in the business, immediately try to fix any problem, okay, and incredible benefits. There's no issue here. You know what the real issue is? And this is just my suspicion, okay? This is based on nothing. None of the reports came out about this, but this is my suspicion. Some, some people in the union went to the media and tried to portray Bernie negatively as if he did something wrong. When I just told you the whole story and it's crystal clear what went on, and it's crystal clear they've been doing the right thing every step of the way, okay? Um, I think there are moles in the campaign. I think that there are people who are either right-wing plants or, if not, like right-wing Republican plants in the campaign, corporate centrist Democrat plants, like, you know, former centrist, third-way kind of Democrats, Hillary Clinton Democrats, who are, like, trying to bring down the campaign from within. And this is not unheard of, by the way. If you think this is conspiratorial, think again. There were moles in the Trump campaign the last time around, um, and that was reported on. So, and when I say moles in that instance, I mean, like, CIA, FBI plants. I'm pretty sure the CIA and the FBI will have plants in every campaign. But in this instance, I don't think it's a CIA or FBI plant, although it could be. I think, it, I think it's more likely it's a corporate centrist Democrat plant or a Republican plant who's trying to, like, he took this information, gave it to the press. The press portrayed it in the most negative light imaginable, didn't tell you the full story, and tried to portray Bernie as a hypocrite on $15 an hour. They're trying to tank the campaign from within by giving dirt. That's what I think is going on here. But anyway, I digress from that point. Let's get back to what Tucker was saying. Um, do you realize how insane a claim it is to, to say that the 20 Democratic candidates, they're all the same? 
oh, the only thing you're arguing over is you want the first gay president, you want the first black female president. That's all they're arguing over. Okay, this is another one of those issues where I hear Tucker say this, and I think, dude, there's no way you're dumb enough to believe what you just said. Like, you know that what you just said is a complete lie, that there's massive differences between the different candidates. Massive differences. Giant differences. So, but this is his shtick. His shtick is like, oh, you know, the left, they're all the same. They're all fucking obsessed with identity politics. And, uh, you know, they're not focused on issues. And then he does a massive straw man of everybody on the left and everybody running for president. He says, they're running on open borders. There's not a single candidate running on open borders. Not a single one. The furthest anybody has gone is to say the following. We need to change the law from um, illegally crossing the border being a misdemeanor, which is what it is right now, to um, a civil offense. Why? Why do they want to change it to a civil offense? Which, by the way, is still a crime. They want to change it to a civil offense to stop the family separations, to stop the breakup of families, which Democrats and Republicans, including Trump, have argued, yeah, the family separations goes too far. We don't want kids in cages. Okay, so we all agree. How do we achieve that? Change border crossings from a misdemeanor to a civil offense, which is still a crime, but you cannot separate the families if it's a civil offense. So that's a lie when they say the left is in favor of open borders. Name one candidate who has, who has argued for open borders without you trying to, oh, I'm going to read between the lines and say what I think they're thinking. No. What they actually say, what's actually posted on their campaign websites, what they're actually arguing for and running on. Name one candidate you can't do it because it's not true. They don't exist. You're full of shit. You're full of shit, Tucker. You're arguing against a stereotype. You straw man the other side, and then you beat down that straw man and walk around like you're some sort of champion. You're some sort of intellectual hero. Oh, please. Give me a break, man. Fake straight shooter nonsense. Then he says they're running on open prisons. What? What are you talking about? We want to abolish private prisons. That's what Democrats are running on, many of them. Want to abolish private prisons. But that's not the same thing as abolishing all prisons. I mean, maybe you find some people, you know, in online, um, in online lefty world, in, in the Twitterverse, who might take that position. But they would be the first to tell you not a single Democratic candidate wants to abolish all prisons. What are you talking about? And then, uh, you know, the classic thing that the right is going to keep coming back to now is, oh, they want to give free health care for illegals. Well, many of the Democratic candidates, not all of them because they're not all for Medicare for all, but Bernie Sanders, for example, wants to give free health care to Americans, too. You leave that one out, but you say, oh, illegals. That's not as extreme as it sounds, because what's the alternative? Let them die in the street? This is a serious question. They get all, like, the right gets all mad when, when oh, the Democrats want to get free health care to illegals. Okay, so if we have a Medicare for all system, and you have an undocumented immigrant who goes to the emergency room, and they have a broken arm, or let's say they're having a, a brain hemorrhage or something, what do you do? Let's say somebody's unconscious and they show up to the ER. What are you going to do? You're going to say, oh, they're not a citizen, so we can't help them. If you're on the right, and take this to its logical conclusion, that's what you'd have to say. No, you're not a citizen, so we're not going to give you health care. What do you want me to tell you? What do you want me to tell you? So what's the alternative here, guys? What's the alternative? And also, it's easy to focus on, oh, illegals, you want to give illegals health care. But they're purposely denying and dodging the idea that 
Medicare for all would cover all Americans. So it's not a zero-sum game. It's not like, well, if, 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 I, uh, don't, if I don't get health care, the illegal immigrant is getting it. No, you're going to get it. <laughs> you're going to get it. Relax, breathe. It's okay. You're going to get it, and you're going to pay a lot less for it. And you'll have to pay private taxes in the form of premium co-pays and deductibles to a rapacious mafia-like middleman. So this, they have their little nuggets that they seize on to try to act like, you know, the left is crazy. And probably the majority of them are just not true and are made up and are stupid. And then the other ones that they try to harp away on are just, they're like gross distortions and misleading arguments that try to instill fear in you to make you think like, I want to treat illegals better than they treat me. Nonsense. Under a Medicare for all system, everybody's covered full stop and you pay less for it. So this isn't, and the funny thing is, he's obfuscating because as he argues like, oh, the Democrats want free health care for illegals. What he doesn't tell you is the Republicans don't want free health care for Americans. Under Trump, we have 30 to 40 million Americans without health insurance. We have 30 to 45,000 Americans that die every year because they don't have access to basic health care. That's what we have right now. You should be fear-mongering over that because that's actually something to fear. But no, you're always going, oh, health care for illegals, gross. Man, how embarrassing is this? Under Trump, 7 million more people lost their health insurance just since Trump's been in office. Why don't you fear-monger about that, Tucker? You won't do it because you like Trump. So it's, um, this was just, he packed the bullshit into this segment, man. Try a little harder next time you smear Bernie. Because obviously, as soon as I did the research on this, I was like, oh, Tucker's full of shit, and he's misleading everybody in his audience. All right, let's do the segment on Fareed Zakaria. And then we'll take our final break. So Fareed Zakaria actually did the best segment I've ever seen on CNN. Um... So I'm pretty sure that he'll be fired within a relatively short time frame. But he, he calls out the military-industrial complex by name here, and I was floored. My jaw was on the ground as I watched this segment because it seriously got better and better and better. Watch. Here's my take. You often hear that in these polarized times, Republicans and Democrats are deadlocked on almost everything. But the real scandal is what both sides agree on. The best example of this is the defense budget. Last week, the Democratic House, filled with radicals, according to the Republicans, voted to appropriate $733 billion for 2020 defense spending. The Republicans are outraged because they, along with President Trump, want that number to be $750 billion. In other words, on the largest item of discretionary spending in the federal budget, accounting for more than half the total, Democrats and Republicans are divided by 2.3%. That is the cancerous consensus in Washington today. America's defense budget 
utterly mismanaged, ruinously wasteful, and yet eternally expanding. $14,000 toilet seat covers and $1,300 cups, yes, cups, are par for the course. Last year, after a quarter century of resisting, the Pentagon finally subjected itself to an audit, which itself, in true Pentagon style, cost over $400 million. Most of its agencies, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, failed. The then Deputy Defense Secretary, Patrick Shanahan, admitted, we never expected to pass. Donald Trump says he's a savvy businessman, yet his attitude towards the Pentagon is that of an indulgent parent. We love and need our military and gave them everything and more, he tweeted proudly last year. Far from bringing defense spending into some rational system, he has simply opened the piggy bank, while at the same time trying to slash spending on almost every other government agency. The much deeper danger, however, is spotlighted by Jessica Tuckman Matthews in a superb essay in the New York Review of Books. Matthews points out that we think about defense budgets in a fundamentally erroneous way, tying it to overall GDP. But the defense budget should be related to the threats the country faces, not the size of its economy. If a country's GDP grows by 30%, she writes, it has no reason to spend 30% more on its military. To the contrary, unless threats worsen, you would expect that over time, defense spending as a percentage of a growing economy should decline. The United States faces a world in flux, to be sure, but surely not a more dangerous world than during the Cold War. It now spends more than the next 10 countries in the world put together, six of which are close allies like Britain and France. And the real threats of the future, cyber war, space attacks, require different strategies and spending. And yet, Washington keeps spending billions and billions on aircraft carriers and tanks. In the case of the latter, Matthews points out, the Army tried to get Congress to stop spending on new ones. It has more than 6,000 tanks. No luck. There are even more fundamental questions about the structure of the Pentagon. Why do we have an Air Force if the Army, Navy, and Marines each have its own Air Force? Why does every service have its own representative to lobby for spending in Congress? Dwight Eisenhower was the kind of Republican who had a pragmatic skepticism about government. He was the kind of seasoned general who understood that peace came from a combination of military strength and diplomatic engagement. That was why in his farewell address, he spoke about the dangers of the military-industrial complex. Sixty years later, it looks like one of the most prophetic warnings any president has ever made. I've had my massive disagreements with Fareed Zakari in the past, but he that is such a superb job he did there. Bringing this notion, this concept, this idea to an audience that wouldn't otherwise see it. I'm almost um, starting to believe that maybe he started watching, like, lefty YouTube. <laughs> like, the stuff he was saying there, I was like, hmm. This could easily be information that he, he gathered from watching, uh, you know, myself or Jimmy Dore or any of a number of lefty YouTubers. I mean, what is there to add to that? He knocked it out of the park. All that is totally true. In this country, our welfare is warfare. Think about that. We have jobs tied to the defense industry, the military-industrial complex, 
in 50 out of 50 states. Why? What does that do? It makes it so that any and all Congress people are hesitant to cut back on the military spending because they go, whoa, whoa, whoa. I got jobs tied in my state for that. Do I want a couple thousand people out of work who are knocking down my door and saying, what the hell? So they're more likely to say, well, yeah, we could do an increase with the military spending this year because that means that, you know, X amount more Kevlar vests or, or tanks or airplanes or certain parts for a gun, it, they're going to be manufactured. We're going to need more of them. So our welfare is warfare. Our economy is so intricately tied into the military industrial complex that if we were to cut back on all this war, all these weapon sales, um, there would be plenty of people who lose their jobs. So instead, we just kick the can down the road and just say, I don't know, just keep spending more and more and more and more and more. And the results of that are obviously disastrous. We're bombing, you know, at least seven different countries. We're doing a shadow war in Africa. And then we do weapons deals with all the worst actors in the world, whether it's Turkey, whether it's Saudi Arabia, whether it's Israel. Um, so whether we're, we're flooding arms into Syria, like, and jihadists end up getting these weapons too. So we are fueling international conflict in no uncertain terms. And then we have dumbass politicians in this country like Trump who turn around and brag about, we gave the military everything they wanted and more. When Dwight Eisenhower was warning about exactly this, war makes a lot of people rich at the top. The executives of these companies, the owners of these companies, the stockholders of these companies, this is the military-industrial complex. Smedley Butler said war is a racket. It was basically, he was saying all about the profits. So you have a lot of people getting rich off of it. You have a lot of jobs tied to it. It's become such a big part of the economy that it's hard to even fathom moving away from it. But that's what we need to do. We need to totally retool our economy. We need to make it so that we have jobs in other industries that are benign. You know, if we do a Green New Deal and we have millions of jobs created in green technology and renewable technology, we have all these infrastructure jobs created to rebuild our infrastructure, rebuild our airports, our roads, our bridges, make us the number one country in the world when it comes to infrastructure, get us off of fossil fuels, all the, the jobs coming in the future, building the transportation of the future, whether it be high-speed rail, whether it be cars that are not run on gas. Like, there's a lot of stuff. We could look at climate change like an opportunity to fix the country and our economy and give people good, decent-paying jobs and get off of our warfare addiction. We could do that. Or we could just keep kicking the can down the road and continue to spend ourselves into oblivion and waste a tremendous amount of resources on the military-industrial complex. It's gone to the point where even CNN hosts acknowledge, like, yeah, you know what? little crazy what we're currently doing, isn't it? Okay, final break of the day. When we come back, I'll tell you exactly what you have to look forward to. CNN fawned over some celebrities who are contributing to Democratic candidates. Um, And then I have a story about uh, 
a pastor who's been doing sexual assault that will, I mean, I, I don't even have a, an effective tease for this, because if I tease this story, it's just going to give it away. But all you need to know is the world's grossest and horniest pastor of all time and how he duped over his victims. So we have that. And then also a story about a secular talk, um, secular talk, longtime secular talk listener, and a medical issue involving that listener's friend. And uh, it is absolutely heartbreaking. So stay right there for all this um, and more. We'll be right back.
son of a bitch. All right, so we just covered the story that had the best thing to ever come out of CNN ever. That was Free Zakaria talking about the military-industrial complex and making sense out of nowhere. Out of nowhere at all. Um, well, now... CNN uh, fawned over some celebrities in a way that only CNN can. I'm curious to know what everybody else thinks about this segment. Um, But let's take a look. So CNN fawned over some celebrities and um, who they're contributing to on the Democratic side for president. Let's watch. candidates, the Hollywood primary is heating up. Check this out, Senator Kamala Harris hanging out with some pop stars this weekend. Well, who else is picking sides? Hollywood may have found a new leading man. Campaign finance disclosures out this week reveal that in the race for celebrity support, 47-year-old South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg may be pulling ahead. This spring, the Indiana mayor scooped up donations from a star-studded cast of Hollywood royalty, including Gwyneth Paltrow, Michael J. Fox, and Kevin Bacon. In fact, in Hollywood these days, it's more like six degrees of Mayor Pete. Another favorite among the celebrity set, their home state senator, Kamala Harris, who scored donations from Sean Penn, John Cheadle, and former TV spy Jennifer Garner. This is how it's going to be. America's sweetheart Tom Hanks wrote a check to former Vice President Joe Biden's campaign. He could also offer the former VP some advice on debate prep. You never know what you're going to get. One complication, in this 2020 election cycle, cashing big checks from millionaires could be problematic. You've become kind of a favored candidate of, uh, of the elite. We're trying to reach everybody at every different level. Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren has sworn off, quote, fancy receptions or big money fundraisers. I am not doing fundraisers with multimillionaires, but Hollywood just can't seem to quit her. Warren still found support from Bette Midler, Amy Schumer, and Scarlett Johansson. Some celebrities couldn't pick just one candidate, like fictional presidential advisor Bradley Whitford. I serve at the pleasure of the President of the United States. He gave to Buttigieg, Senator Cory Booker, and former HUD Secretary Julian Castro. The primary race is just getting started. But if one of these Democrats wins in 2020, the future president may need Hollywood's help on a sequel. This is like such a CNN story. It, it just, this is what they care about. This is what they care about. And this is what they think is serious. They actually took the time to make this segment and deliver this segment. And I love how there's no consideration whatsoever as to whether or not this is a good thing or a bad thing. Like, maybe you mentioning that these candidates are supported by X, Y, and Z celebrities, maybe it's actually not going to help them. Have you thought about that, maybe, a little bit? Or no, is it just like, <laughs> my friends in the cocktail circuit who you've seen on the TV... They have favorites. It's Mayor Pete. (laughs) Okay, notice who was not mentioned, Bernie Sanders, okay? But here's 
the main takeaway to me. It's that, and, I, and I've realized this a long time ago about Hollywood, is that they love symbolism. And a lot of the centrist Democrats love symbolic change. So they are so down for, you know, oh my God, the first gay president, the first female president, the first female black president. Like, they're so big on that. To them, that's everything. Because then they get to pat themselves on the back and act like, yeah, we're forward thinking. We're good people, yeah. That's like, that's their, their whole thing. However, when it comes to policy, they're down with slight tweaks to the status quo. Why slight tweaks? Because they're all massively wealthy, and they're all really comfortable. So they don't want a revolution. They don't. They want slight tweaks. They don't want somebody who's going to come in there and raise their taxes massively. They want somebody like Mayor Pete or somebody like Kamala or somebody like Biden, where, okay, they're, gonna, they're not going to be directly shitty in the year 2020 to minorities. They're going to be good people to minorities. They're going to be a symbolic figurehead, a leader who says the right things and is tonally moderate, um, but they're not swashbuckling, anti-corruption, populist lefties who want to do an actual revolution, a, a political revolution where you get the money out of the political system, everybody gets health care, you raise taxes on the rich, you crack down on Wall Street. That is not what they're for, because in this system, they've done really well. So are they, now, are these people bad people? No, I wouldn't say they're bad people. Um, but they're also not as, like, hip and lefty as they would want you to believe. Um, they're actually very centrist in their politics, and they're only in favor of slight changes, because slight changes, um, like, to them, like, how many of these, these um, Hollywood figures care about, like, I don't know, U.S. imperialism <laughs> and the, the plunder of countries that didn't attack us? and the illegal and offensive wars, that's not really high on their list. They'd much, they'd much rather yes-queen themselves to death. So that's what I take away from this. But I also just find it incredibly insular and insufferable that you know CNN does this segment. And it really is, they, like, they try to put a cheery face on it, like, see, celebrities like these candidates, aren't these candidates great? And you just want to remind them over and over, Remember 2016, remember Hillary Clinton, remember how you trotted out every single Hollywood dipshit under the sun, and remember how she still lost. Maybe, just maybe, people don't really look to the Hollywood types for direction. Maybe they don't look at them as like some sort of leaders. Maybe regular people look at them like, you know, self-obsessed virtue signaling pricks who want to pat themselves on the back. I'm just saying. I'm just saying, maybe that's a little part of it. Maybe you might want to take that into account before you do this goofy-ass segment acting like this is important or serious or even worth mentioning. Okay.
So Alex Young is a longtime listener to Secular Talk. He's always been uh, a loyal viewer and friend, and he contacted me last week and shared something that just totally broke me because it really exposes just how screwed up our healthcare system is. And I'm sure everybody knows somebody who went through something similar to this because it's just, it affects everybody. Our broken healthcare system affects everybody in this country. Everybody knows my story and my dad's story about how, you know, my dad, he didn't have insurance and he went to, he was feeling back pain, extreme back pain, and he kept going to a chiropractor who kept telling him, oh, I'll come back here, we'll fix it. Turns out that the night he was rushed to the emergency room uh, is the night he learned, dude, that was cancer that had metastasized to your back. It metastasized from your lungs to your back. And he had stage four cancer, lung cancer, and that's what the back pain was. And he went to somebody who's a chiropractor who, you know, as everybody's heard me talk about before, they are what they are. I would say they're like glorified massage therapists. And if you go to them knowing that, totally fine. But if you go to the ones who go to the extreme end of the spectrum and they believe in the vertebral subluxation theory, which is that, oh, if I just crack your back and align your spine right, then all your diseases will be taken care of. They're snake oil salesmen and they're bullshitters. But my dad not having insurance, going to a chiropractor thinking he was going to like a real doctor, I mean, if we had a system where everybody was covered, he could have just went to the doctor right away and not gone to a goofy-ass chiropractor. And when he went to the doctor, maybe it would have been stage two cancer, and maybe he would have survived. I don't know. But this is the thing about our healthcare system. is totally broken. Now, you know, you could say, oh, hey, my dad also wasn't the smartest dude in the world to do what he did. Fair enough. <laughs> but it is also the case that he is considered in that, you know, 30 to 45,000 Americans that die every year because they don't have access to basic health care. That's my dad. That's my dad. So, but there's a lot of stories like this. It's not just me. Everybody's been touched by it in one way or another. And um, this is one of those stories right here. So I want to tell you about that. So Alex has a friend by the name of Megan Nicole. And uh, look at what's happening to her. She explains here. She says, I've been experiencing the worst chronic pain for the past two years now. I had an accident, or excuse me, I had an incident where I fell and hit my face pretty hard. I have literally been in pain every single day since the injury happened. No exaggeration. The pain is constantly in my jaw and travels to my sinuses, head, neck, shoulders, upper back, and even eyes. The pain affects every aspect of my sleeping and waking life. I've seen every kind of doctor I can think to see. Chiropractors, dentists, ear, nose, and throat doctors, neurologists, eye doctors, massage therapists, oral surgeons. I've been diagnosed with chronic TMJ which only keeps getting worse and worse. It's gone to the point where it hurts, it hurts too bad to smile, laugh, or talk. It is also extremely hard to get through shifts at work. I've had two surgeries, a ton of dental work done, my teeth shaven down, and prescribed a ridiculous amount of different medications. I found out that I've been living with a deviated septum. My septum has collapsed and is causing almost complete airflow blockage. I also have a golf ball-sized cyst in my right nasal cavity, causing a tremendous amount of discomfort. It is greatly affecting my um, capability or capacity of having a normal life. I have decided to do the surgery without anesthesia in order to drop the price from $11,000 down to $5,927. I'm hoping that by a few acts of kindness, I can get this surgery done and feel at least somewhat normal again. 
So she can't afford the surgery. She can't even afford the surgery without the anesthesia. It's our system's so bad, and she's so screwed that she's like, hey, listen, I'll get it done without the anesthesia. I just have to get it done. So in other words, she's saying, I will sign up to go through an excruciatingly painful surgery because the pain I'm feeling right now is so bad that even with the excruciatingly painful surgery, maybe I'll get some relief after. So I'll do it. I'll do it, and I'll do it without the anesthesia. I'll do anything I can because I have to stop this. This is the system we have. This is how people struggle in the system. In what world does it make sense to spend $7 trillion on an offensive war against a country that didn't attack us? And we don't have money to spare for somebody like this who has a serious health problem. This is why GoFundMe has become like one of the top things GoFundMe is used for. The top thing, I believe, is medical emergencies and medical bills because people can't pay for their medical care. And that's exactly what we're looking at here. I mean, this to live with like a chronic problem is bad enough. It's bad. It's terrible. To live with a chronic problem and then not be able to afford a surgery for it and then not even be able to afford a surgery without anesthesia, this is a failed system. This is a failed system because she didn't do anything wrong. She didn't do anything wrong. The people who are victims of the system didn't do anything wrong at all. Our healthcare system is the problem. The pharmaceutical companies are the problem. The health insurance companies are the problem. Our government is the problem. It's all corrupt. And it's all broken. And it's all terrible. So um, she is doing a fundraiser. I believe she's trying to hit that. Originally, it was the $5,900 for the, um, the surgery without the anesthesia. She wasn't able to get anywhere near that. So she dropped it to 2200 And then she was going to try to raise the money elsewhere to get the surgery done without the anesthesia. See how crazy this is? So anyway, I'm going to leave the link in the video description box. And if you can, give $2, give $5, give $10, give whatever you can. Because not only do I want her to get the surgery, I want her to get the surgery and be able to afford the anesthesia. So even though she's asking for now, it's $2,200. Let's see if we can get her to that $11,000 number. Because this is just totally heartbreaking. It's bad enough to deal with a chronic problem. Then to deal with the chronic problem and have no anesthesia and get the surgery without anesthesia, that's really bad, too. So at the very least, let's get the anesthesia and the surgery done. And again, this is uh, Megan Nicole. The link is in the video description box. And uh, if you can help out, please help out. You know, it's always a weird situation for me covering these kinds of stories because I'm one person. And I'm a news and politics show. So I have a lot of stuff I have to talk about every time there's a show. And the crazy thing and the sad thing about how broken our, our healthcare system is, is it would be possible for me to do every single show where I do nothing but tell you about a disaster for somebody in our healthcare system, where they need money, they need funding, they need to get a surgery covered, they need help, they need to pay for their medication, they can't afford their medication. And of course, we can't we can't fix the whole system on our own. <laughs> like, it's, what are we going to do? If we had every progressive show do nothing but all these healthcare horror stories nonstop, even that's not enough to even make a little dent, drop in the bucket. And it's devastating. So what we really need is systemic change. 
What we really need is to march on Washington, get a million people out there and say, Medicare for all or get the fuck out of our way or we're going to kick you out of office. I mean, that's what's really needed. Um, but if you can find it, uh, if you do have uh, just a couple spare dollars to help her out, that would be wonderful. Again, link in the video description box. And uh, I wish her the best. Okay. Final story of the day. This will be the. Uh, <laughs> this is quite a story to end on. And you want to talk about switching gears? Oh boy, did we switch gears here. This is the quickest gear change maybe in history. So I know I talk as my job, but I do not have the words for this next story. So the headline is going to have to do. Pastor claims. He was sucking demons out of sexually assaulted men. Multiple victims have come forward to accuse a New Jersey pastor of sexually assaulting them as part of exorcism rituals. Three men have come forward claiming Reverend Dr. William Weaver performed sex acts on them when they came to him for private counseling at Linden Presbyterian Church, Newsweek reported Thursday. Weaver, 69 would allegedly tell the men that he needed to suck out demons through their semen, citing Native American rituals and a verse from Ephesians telling Christians to put on the full armor of God. According to impact statements, the men submitted to the Presbytery of Elizabeth, which, was, which has jurisdiction over the church in Linden, Weaver would order each to strip naked and lie down, then he would place an angel coin on their foreheads and have them balance stones on their hands and ankles. Weaver would then allegedly perform oral sex on them, Newsweek reported. Yep, I told you, I don't have the words. <laughs> I got nothing to say. <laughs> I don't know how to respond to this. This is, this is just... What? How? I don't understand. Now, they don't really go on to explain much about the victims. I don't know how many there were. I don't know their age, ages. I don't know their ages at the time. I just know that there were victims, and he's 69 years old. Don't make a joke about that. He's 69 years old, so he's obviously been doing this for quite a long time. How brazen do you have to be to even give that a whirl? To even be like, okay, so listen, I know this is going to sound crazy and stuff. I know it's going to sound crazy. But I know the way to fix you. You got all these problems. I'm here to help you out. There's this old Native American ritual, and it totally works. And it's also, it says it in the Bible in Ephesians that this is how you put on the armor of God. You gotta get the demons out of you, but there's only one way the demons can come out of you. I'm just letting you know. So listen, you wanna get fixed? Hey man, you don't wanna get fixed? It's all good. I'm out. I'll leave right now. Or you can get out of my office. It's all good. No problem if you wanna continue living with demons inside of you. But if you don't, 
I'm saying we got to do what we got to do. It's not a question. How? How did you, how did you do this? this? You know what this reminded me of? I remember, um, and a lot of people don't know this, back during when I was growing up, and when many of you were growing up, there was the boy band craze. And it was, you know, started, I think, with New Kids on the Block back in the day. That's before my time. But then there was InSync and the Backstreet Boys. That's right when I was growing up. And what a lot of people don't know is that whole, like, the whole boy band craze, a lot of it was started by a guy named Lou Pearlman, who's allegedly a pedophile. And the whole thing was like, I just want to have little boys around me all the time. And so what better way to do that than to start a record company and create all these boy bands, and you control their schedules, <laughs> you, you know, control the choreography, you pay for them, and as they become, like, world-famous superstars, the entire time he's trying to sexually assault all of them, or a bunch of them, not all of them. And there was a story that the dude from LFO had told. The dude from LFO was another boy band. He was on uh, Howard Stern talking about this, and he said that how brazen these guys are is mind-boggling. He would call this dude into the office, um, and he would say, this was back when he was a kid. He was like a teenager or something. He was like, listen, man, we want to give you the show in Germany, but the guy who controls the venue is saying, you're going to have to do something for him in order for him to get the show. And, I mean, listen, I hate this. I can't believe he said it. It's disgusting, but this is how the business works, bro. What he said is, in order, in order for, you know, you to get the show, you got to touch his junk. You just got to do it. You, I mean, that's, do you want the show or do you not want the show? You want to make it in this business? You don't want to make it in this business. You got to touch that guy's junk. But listen, I'm here. I'm your boy, and I'm here to help you. And, I've, you know, I've helped you your entire career. So what we're going to do so you're not totally creeped out by doing that is you're going to practice on me. You're going to practice on me, bro. So here, come here, come here. <laughs> like, this is literally the stuff, this is what they would try. This is the stuff they would pull. These are the arguments they would make. But this still, I was going to say blows that out of the water, but perhaps blows is not the right word to use in the context of this story. Knocks it out of the park. I mean, this is way above and beyond what even happened there. Can you imagine uh, telling somebody like a poor kid, or even an adult. Although, if it is the adult, come on, bro. You got to know that this. You got to know what this pastor's trying to do. Can you imagine being a grown ass man going in there, and the pastor's like, "I gotta suck the demons out of your dick, bro. I gotta." <laughs> and you're a grown ass man, and your response is not like, "Oh fuck." So, I mean, my guess is it, they wouldn't be grown ass men because if they were grown ass men, and you don't immediately know what's going on here, then what? I'm confused, dude. This is terrible. Here's the other question. How many more dudes like this out there are there? Because this is obviously a phenomenon that exists in the world of, like, creepy pedophiles acting on their urges and being, like, really weaselly and gross in every imaginable way to abuse their victims. This obviously exists, but, like, how widespread is it? Because if we know about the story that, like, this boy band craze was built on the back of a dude who was just a pedophile, and, like, we know about the, the Catholic Church scandal and all them and all the little kids, and it was, they paid out, I think, over a billion dollars in damages. How widespread is this? Listen, I'm, I'm a cynical dude, 
But I'll just tell you like I see it, and it's easy for me to say because I have no kids. But God damn it, do not leave your kids alone with, you know, older dudes. In some cases, probably women too. And be extra careful because my sneaking suspicion is the following. The ones who you feel most comfortable with your kids being with, those are the ones you got to look out for. I'm serious. Because, like, you don't think these creepy people are know how to manipulate people? That's all they've been doing their whole lives. So usually it's probably the one who you're most convinced is like, oh, that's just, Bob's cool. What are you talking about? Bob's the nicest guy in the world. He, he, ta- he talks to us. He asks how we're doing. He knows little Jimmy. Like, what do you mean? It's Bob. That's the one you got to look out for. <laughs> That's the one you got. It's the, the ones who don't want to be around kids are usually the ones who the kids are most safe with. I'm serious. I'm dead serious. The ones who are like, kids. <laughs> Those are the ones who you're like, okay, put that. that's the person who can probably look after the kid and be okay. The ones who are like, you know, a little too excited to be a grown-ass man, to be around kids. Those are the ones you got to look out for. But, hey, what do I know? I'm just a YouTube host. All right, guys. We are done, so bitch. All right, love you guys. I'll talk to you soon. Everybody enjoy the rest of your day. Um, we will see you either on Kyle and Corin or uh, on the show on Thursday. We're out. Peace.